welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. And I'm Zoe Ingram. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today, our episode is with the president of Sage BioNetworks, Lara Mangroviti. And I wasn't here for this, so Zoe, why did we, why did we talk to them? Actually, we talked to them because they reached out to us. They um, listened to our episode on uh, open screening and reached out and said they had some things that they thought were worth sharing. And uh, in retrospect, thinking about it, you know, thinking about doing this intro here, I was actually surprised to reflect on how many things they are doing. So they have open data, they have creating a community research, and also citizen science. Wow. But I think that the episode is long and speaks enough for itself. Okay, let's hear from Lara. Okay, let's hear from Lara then. I'm Lara Mangarviti. I'm the president at Sage Bio Networks. Um, we're an open science organization uh, located in Seattle. Um, <clears throat> We're about 10 years old, and we focus explicitly on open science practices in bioinformatics and uh, what is now popularly called data science. Um, and so, so why, why there? Um, you are well familiar with the reasons that the open science movement has been initiated and the sorts of problems it's trying to overcome. Um, we're all working to try to increase the credibility of scientific research through transparency and reproducibility and greater access. There's a couple of problems that are perhaps unique to the computational uh, biomedicine uh, space that also need to be addressed uh, that my organization focuses on. One of those is around the use of human data in research uh, and the need to be able to do responsible data sharing across multiple groups, across countries and institutions and, and outside of, of, of the general silos uh, because you need a huge amount of data to be able to make reliable scientific claims. And that data is, of course, sensitive and protected. Um, and you also need to make sure that you have uh, wide and diverse representation of people in those data sets to be able to establish the generalizability of claims. And um, in order to be able to do that, you, of course, then need to be data sharing across institutions. So we've been working for 10 years on effective ways to intersect technology and ethics and governance and scientists together to try to solve some of those problems. Um, that sounds really amazing, I must say. I mean, it's, it's really also like looking at your website. I'm, I'm very impressed. Um, I, I wonder, is this something, why, why Sage Analytics? Couldn't you do, be doing this from inside the academia? Is That's that a wonderful the, question. Yeah. So we... Uh, that feels like a very loaded question. <laughs> um, so we very explicitly built Sage Bio Networks as an organization outside of any traditional institute, an academic institute or a commercial institute. 
because all of those organizations need to be sharing with each other. And it's a matter of trust, right? Each of them, we all share an interest in furthering scientific knowledge, but the incentives under which science is performed across the world right now sometimes is misaligned with working together um, and sharing. And that is just as true for academic institutes and academic researchers as it is in the commercial space when you're um, required to um, compete for funds, which is true in either of those worlds. Uh, it it can sometimes get in the way of sharing. And so building a completely separate institution that acts as an independent, um, neutral party often is very powerful in getting researchers who might not want to share with each other to share through us with each other. So we we act as this sort of independent, neutral party to to foster sharing even when groups aren't necessarily comfortable completely with each other. I'm trying to kind of visualize it for myself. Like, now, okay, I'm basically being senior scientist in a lab mm. and I'm working on a certain project and I need more data. And I know that a competitor in France, let's say France, yeah. Um, yeah. is working on a similar project um, and yeah. has the complementary data or basically something that will really benefit me. And okay, so we do not talk to each other because we're competitors and we want to publish first and have the funding first. Yeah. Better. What would us? What would bring us to work through you then? I mean, how do we benefit from? I mean, yeah. the access to data, yes, but how do you convince us, me and yeah. the hypothetical French competitor, to work through you, basically? Yeah. I mean, I think in the situation you just described, you would the, the shortest and easiest thing to do would be simply for you to call up your competitor and for you two to work directly with each other. When we get involved, it's usually a, a bigger, broader project. And it's usually, um, at this point, funder mandated. Mm -hmm. So a funder will fund six or eight people to work on similar things. And generate similar data. And one of the terms of receiving the grants is you must deposit your data in a central place, or even if the data doesn't live exactly in the same place, it can be accessed through a central hub. Um, so it's available for everyone. And, and there's, there's a couple of flavors of that. Sometimes there's simply um, the, the case where data generation is happening for one large data set, but across multiple institutes, right? The International Cancer Genome Consortium is an example of that, right? We're pulling data in from across multiple countries to be able to do, to make one big data set that everyone can analyze. So you're creating a resource for the community. Um, so that's one kind of project we might get involved in. Um, on the other side, when you actually have individual groups generating their own data, it, it's it's usually because the, that collection of data helps answer a, a broader question. So uh, maybe I could give you an example. Those yes. often help. Um, okay, so some years ago, uh, we were sitting at a conference in a session where there were a series of talks about using um, uh, gene expression data from colon cancer to create a biomarker to help with 
making treatment choices. And four groups got up and gave effectively the same talk about having generated their own data and analyzed it with their own in-house homegrown method and come up with a signature that should help treatment. And by the time the last group got up, the whole room was sort of like, well, who am I supposed to believe? How are these related to each other? And in that case, the groups also started to run into that same problem as they tried to publish in journals. The journals are saying, I don't think I can publish another one of these papers because um, we, we don't understand how these, uh, how these relate to each other. And so we put together a consortium, the Colorectal Cancer Consortium, where six groups with six different data sets and six different methods basically did a meta-analysis, a matrix. So all six groups used their method against each of the six data sets. And then we evaluated the biomarkers that came out to see where the commonalities were across them that were independent of method or, or study. Um, and those groups were not actually willing to share their data with each other. And so they gave the data to us and we helped to run their methods on the various data sets so as to, 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 protect, um, to protect the needs that they had. And they were able to find a series of biomarkers that were universally seen across all of those methods and studies that were immediately then able to be, go right into being tested in the clinic because they had, you know, it's, it's the essence of a reliable scientific outcome. Right? You've looked across all of those things. So that is a, an example that was started through serendipity, right? We were all sort of in the room together. Um, but we see a lot of funders and researchers thinking about doing this in a more intentional way now. And so, um, so a huge part of the work that we do is in fostering that. Now, I don't think that's enough. There's a second piece of it that was implicit in what I just said, which is um, we need to be able to understand actually how uh, useful and reliable our methods are um, that we use on top of that data. And particularly in computational research, making, making your method open is, is just not sufficient. I'm not going to read through 10,000 lines of code to decide whether or not I think you did the right thing. Um, you know, the, the other way that, that code is, is shared these days is um, it can now be containerized so that people can pick it up and just rerun it and demonstrate it, that it's rerunnable. But even then, you don't know if it's rerunnable and right or rerunnable and wrong. And so we've uh, initiated a series of programs that help to benchmark computational algorithms against gold standard data sets. So you can say, well, this method works well with the following caveats, or it works well in this situation, but not that situation, um, uh, so that the rest of the community can, um, first of all, understand um, how they, what they think about the reliability of research that comes from those algorithms, and second of all, pick algorithms that they might want to use themselves moving forward. That sounds like a wonderful solution to the replication crisis, actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's um, the first part of um, basically this pooling um, data sets and running the meta-analysis. It's, it's kind of what's being done in clinical studies as well, right, when you yeah. do the meta-analysis. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting concept. I've never heard that yeah. it's actually being done in the bioinformatics. It's, it's cool. Yeah. Um, 
I wonder, do you also get contacted for for this kind of purpose? There's all this, uh, there are all these initiatives for uh, replicating studies, um, also yes. in the psychology and so on. Yes. So wouldn't your platform be like the perfect place to do something like that? And wonder, are you involved in any of this? Or yeah, uh, so we work a lot with. Um, or we interact a lot with Brian Nosek, who runs the Center for Open mm. Science and has been uh, representing those sorts of studies that mm. you're talking about. Um, our platform and our methods are are really focused on computationally intensive mm -hmm. research programs. Um, so that that sort of has its own world, and our um, and our platform is tailored for those. So. A, a psychology study could use our platform, but it, there are other platforms it could use as well versus the, the really data-intensive, um, computational-hungry work in, in bioinformatics and biomedicine um, really needs a certain uh, uh, ability to... You need, it needs a set of computational tools to be able to effectively and securely share and and then actually compute and so we we focus in that world um so yes in theory but in practice okay. we uh we focus we focus elsewhere yeah do you have to be part of a consortium to be able to use the platform or can individual researchers as well use it yeah so it was really important to us that that any of the tools that we build were openly available for anyone who wanted to use them so uh, our technical platform which is called synapse is is free for anyone to use. Um, in fact, probably too free. We haven't even figured out how to, um, or we ha haven't put the time into even uh, asking people to pay for their own storage in the Amazon cloud. So we even cover <laughs> that. Um, but in, in practice, I think the large, and there, there are groups that use it on their own for sure. But in practice, the large scale groups are usually organized in a consortium. Um, and man, and we then will work with the funder to uh, structure that, both sort of socially and and technically, mm. um, and then and then support it. Yeah. But it's interesting. This um, we just been talking about this today as well. Um, this basically the bottom up versus top down approaches. Yeah. So basically, it really needs the funder to tell people, okay, now from now on you do collaborate, um, yeah. and uh, here's a platform or find a way, but. Um, Otherwise, you just won't get the money, and then all of it's, it's possible. It's the, and it's really interesting, right? Because is that forced collaboration doesn't necessarily feel like <laughs> the most effective kind of collaboration. Um, and but but it's really true when you're working mm -hmm. on a, a program that's very similar and complementary to another. Um, it often does take the funder to force people to look up. And, and, and think about what they're doing. And, and it's been interesting for us to watch now after many years, um, how researchers who are initially forced into a program like that by a funder, um, how they experience that and how they embody that moving forward in their research. So, you know, I think quite naively, we originally thought, oh, we're gonna show people that collaborative research is so helpful, they'll do it all the time from now on, right? And that's, um, completely naive <laughs> because it is the case that uh, collaboration can really help overcome certain barriers and challenges in science. But sometimes the fastest way to get at a problem is just to sit down at your table and solve it, right? And so this combination of um, here's a set of problems that I can solve 
within my lab in a traditional way. And I'm using, for example, methods that are standard and data that is solid. And, and there isn't, there aren't these questions around reliability. I can, I can use standard methods of open science to get where I need to be here versus I've really hit a question where I'm not sure I have enough data to answer it. And I'm not even sure that the methods I'm looking at are necessarily the right ones. Um, now I need to actually start to work with other people. And so you see this a lot in uh, researchers who work, for example, on rare diseases. And so when they, when they need um, data from individuals with the rare disease, even if they're looking within you know, their countrywide medical system, they don't have enough cases to be able to do the kind of research they need to do. So they have to um, collaborate. And then you, you see really amazing, effective collaborations there, but it's not for every single experiment they run, right? It's, there's a suite of the experiments that it's useful and there's a suite that it's not. And, it, and so it's this wonderful sort of interplay, I find. And how do you deal with credits in the collaborations? I mean, is this something you just throw in one basket and then how, yeah, careers, PhDs? Uh... It's such a big question, right? How do you properly give credit in group science when our systems are really designed to give credit and appreciate individual independent contribution? Um, so we do it a whole series of ways. You know, we have technical implementations. So within our system, every single thing that anybody does is accredited to them. And so you can look back to see who's contributed data, who's processed data, who's QC data, who in the community forum is evaluating the data or educating, those sorts of things. And that's nice, but very difficult to put on your CV or help use that sort of information to support, for example, a grant application. So we look for places where we can intersect with the existing um, uh, accreditation infrastructure. So for example, when somebody places a data set into one of our consortium, uh, we encourage them and work with them to create a data paper that describes the data. And um, there's a couple of journals out there that focus explicitly on uh, describing data resources. For, for example, Nature has one called Scientific Data. And you can, you can then, you can describe the data and get a citation for it. And that's actually also tremendously useful for anyone who might want to use the data. Because as we all know, there's so much context that goes into how the data was generated and what choices were made along the way that without that information, you can often make errors in the use of that data. So it, it sort of benefits everyone. Um, and then, you know, within the system, we work really hard to make sure that terms are propagated down to data users. And the major term we propagate is uh, appropriate accreditation to the scientists who have generated and worked on this data uh, previously. And um, that's really hard to police that people are actually doing that. And we occasionally do have instances where proper credit is not given, and then we need to go in and, um, and, and work through that, you know, in, in support of our scientists. But, uh, but for the most part, right, scientists are trained to give credit when they use a resource or an idea. And so they're pretty good about doing so. Mm -hmm. I, I was kind of thinking that if you're working on a project where there's so much collaboration, then the impact of the research is also much higher. So 
isn't it like kind of a maybe a, at a turning point where we're shifting from this individual accreditation towards like higher impact and so working on a group or is that a totally idea thought? I guess as long as we still have the first author papers as, like, <laughs> as kind of as the currency of careers. So, um, really, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, yeah. But I mean, how, yeah, like, how do you compare being like the one of the thousand authors on a like uh, really life changing finding product shift something versus first author on a um, paper that's kind of interesting but maybe not so impactful? I don't know. I mean, I think you want both. No, no, I definitely (laughs) don't. So what we found, um, uh, let me, let me give you an example of a a project, a collaborative project we've been involved in for, I think, six years now. It's a, um, a project jointly funded by the National Institute on Aging here in the U.S. and Six, no, four pharmaceutical companies um, to use systems biology approaches to ex- to evaluate human samples in the pursuit of new drug targets for Alzheimer's disease. And there, what I've found has happened in that over that stretch of six years is that the junior investigators, I think, are actually the ones who are benefiting the most from the consortium. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, extra first author papers. What I found it means is extra collaborations. They're meeting the experts in their field, making relationships with them, and then starting external collaborations with those groups. So it's, it's, it's actually, um, the output is less about first author papers and more about opportunities for more research and potentially jobs, et cetera, moving forward. And that's been, that it's very qualitative, right? It's very difficult yeah. to, uh, it, it's very difficult to quantify exactly what that benefit is, but I, they, they're very happy. None, none of them are upset about what's happened and they're, they're finding opportunities. So that's been interesting. That's the classical networking, um, establishing relationships, and yeah. and if they worked in one setting, then you continue with them. And yeah, yeah. Um, I was browsing through your website, and yeah. I've noticed, um, we both noticed um, um, the projects about using the uh, basically wearables or um, apps yeah. and, and so on. And for me, it smells like citizen science somehow. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So we got involved in what we call digital health, which is this concept of being able to monitor people outside of a clinical research setting or outside of a clinic it, within their real life for exactly that reason. Not not citizen scientists per se in the take this device and go experiment on yourself, more so in the how can we get the participant more actively vocal in the research program to make sure that we're actually researching the things that are valuable to our participants and you know patients that have whatever disease or condition you might be studying. Um, and 
And, and that has been very, a very interesting road to navigate because, because researchers, ugh, why? Um, because there still is this us versus them, right? And everyone has a different set of expertise. And how do you, how do you even just cross the language barrier to get researchers and participants talking to each other in a way that they both value, right? And so, um, so that's, that's been very interesting. The, the place that we ended up doing a lot of work and needing to focus first was on how can you communicate with a research participant completely remotely about what it might mean to get involved in a particular research study. So uh, enrollment and informed consent completely remotely through a smartphone or a, a website um, in a way that that embodies technology. Because anyone who's actually been a research participant before um, will probably have had the experience that the informed consent process was pretty archaic and did not involve any technology. It was sort of a long form that you read and you have a conversation and then you fill it out. And there are so many other ways that we communicate these days in our regular life. Um, being able to bring technology in to support that relationship, that communication, um, actually felt like a place where we could make a lot of difference. And so we've had this wonderful opportunity to be involved in the All of Us Research Program, which is a million-person um, research study completely remote research study here in the United States and to be able to build an informed consent process for that and do a little research to demonstrate that um, actually participants are uh, exceptionally well-informed when we provide them with technological uh, mechanisms to be able to interact. Um, and, and so that's been very exciting. Now that's like step one in what you're talking about, which is let's Let's engage participants a little bit more actively in this and even give them some power to study what they might be interested in themselves. <coughs> we, um, we've done a lot of uh, the technology speak for it is user research on our research participants to see what they do value about uh, research studies. And it's incredibly heterogeneous. Right? Some, some people get involved in research purely for altruism. They want to they want to give back. They want to contribute. Um, some people want to get involved because um, their doctor asked them to. Some people want to get involved because it provides them with an opportunity to monitor their own health. They want health insights back. Um, and some people want to, want to completely explore on their own. And so finding a way to use or, or to leverage any research study to meet the needs of all of those groups turns out to be incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, That's like any cohort study, right? When you have yeah. to enroll people and you have to kind of provide them with incentives to actually stick to it. Um, we have a study running here at the Institute. It's supposed to be running for like 15 years and 50,000 people. Yeah. And um, it's not just questionnaires, but really actually physical exams and uh, scans and so on. Um, biobank, everything with it, and it's extremely difficult to um, yeah to engage people, and everybody is looking for the for the magical bullet because yeah. I think it's like a ten percent retention rate, something. Yeah, yeah, and and when you when you 
want to not so that the beauty of wearables or sensors, whether they're embedded in your house or your smartphone or your something you're wearing, right? The beauty of that is perhaps you can gather data in a way that doesn't require someone to show up at the clinic regularly. But on the other hand, now you're encroaching in their regular everyday life. And so if you need an action from them, you're not just competing occasionally with, you know, the inconvenience of the coming to the clinic, you're competing with their other priorities every day to get them to engage with your research study. And so there's this constant engagement um, that you're needing and they're needing to make a choice over and over and over and over again. Um, the, the other thing is you may be, you probably are inadvertently capturing information about their life and their life choices that you didn't intentionally mean to. So, so there's a whole set of questions about privacy that we're just starting to explore. Um, we at SAGE, but also we, the research community, what, what exactly is it we're asking of people? We're not actually sure what the risk benefit ratio of being involved in a study that captures this sort of data is for a research participant. It's probably going to evolve over time as we understand the full nuance of what we can learn from the data that they're collecting. And, you know, this has huge parallels to what's going on outside of research in the world right now with data security across various, um, various technological platforms where people have placed a lot of data, right? And so watching all of that and thinking about how incredibly valuable that information may be is we want to look at precision medicine, look at the effect of individual choices on health outcomes, um, but also how incredibly sensitive that data is and how careful we really need to be with it. Um, it's a really yeah. difficult scenario because you have to reveal a lot in order to learn a lot, but yeah. you also don't know don't want to reveal too much. It, it, it's really, I don't think there is a really solution to this conundrum, right? It's just the way. Um, what about anonymization? But it, it doesn't really work, does it? It's not easy. It, it, it's not easy to anonymize the data. There's been a couple of research um, papers that have come out in the last six months that have said that if, uh, that an individual can be re-identified based on just, I think it was six days of step count data, that it, you, you think that it's completely anonymous data, how, how personalized really is how many steps you took in a day. It's not about where you walked or how you walked, right? But, um, but it is theoretically possible to re-identify from that small amount of data. And of course, there's this whole like, uh, high risk, but low likelihood that somebody is going to take the time to do that. But, and so it is a little bit of a thought experiment, but we just don't know. We don't know who might be interested in doing those things. One of the things we found from the data that we've collected immediately was that the single thing that most impacted the variation in the data um, the strongest signal in the data was the impact of the individual. So I could have, um, for example, we do a, a gait test. We ask people to take their smartphone, place it in their pocket, turn, and it turns the accelerometer on, and then they walk for 30 seconds. So we have 
tens of thousands of sets of accelerometry data from individuals walking down the hall. And we can uniquely tell you which of those came from the same person simply by looking at the data because everybody walks down the hall completely differently. And a lot of these sorts of actions, these activities that we are wanting to look at in the context of health are also being used, you know, as, as biosecurity, right, in, in, in this security domain, right? We, we do retinal scans, right? Well, we think from a retinal scan, we might be able to look at neurodegeneration, but we can also, I can now use it to get into the airport, right? So, um, so these, these things enter, intersect and overlap, but there's so much amazing potential there. And it gets back to the first thing that we were talking about. We need to understand how to responsibly use and share and manage these sorts of data streams um, as they come in. Um, whether that's whether it's wearable data or it's you know your electronic medical record, all of those pieces of information are extremely valuable in biomedicine. And also, right, we need to think about what the right way to use them and manage them is. Do you have a favorite one of those projects that um, does citizen science, like one that you feel like you have to share with us? Yeah. Um, so the the very first project we did was called Empower, and it's a Parkinson's disease study that uses the sensors in a smartphone to evaluate severity of disease on an individual basis. And we asked individuals to do a set of tests, pretty simple tests. Um, take your phone put it down on the table and tap with your two fingers back and forth for 30 seconds, take the phone, put it in your pocket, walk for 30 seconds. There's a little uh, cognitive task in there um, as well. And there's a voice test. And the, the thought is that you can really look at the impact of Parkinson's on somebody's life by looking at those suite of, of, of tasks. Those are the symptoms that a clinician would look at to evaluate how severe the disease is and how well the medication is working. And I think that's the key for Parkinson's is uh, the half-life of the medication that is used most typically in Parkinson's disease, L-DOPA, is very short, a matter of hours. And so individuals need to take the, take the drug multiple times a day. And when they go to see their clinician, which is only about every six months, the clinician is asking them a series of questions about their performance over the last six months to understand um, whether the dose of the drug needs to be changed to um, improve their function and reduce their symptoms. And so being able to just record those symptoms with sensors for a couple of days before you go into the doctor to actually say objectively, here's an objective measure of how well I was performing. Um, feels transformative. We go from a qualitative assessment, the clinician asks you to get up and walk down the hallway and gives you a score on his hand from one to five of how well you walked, right? We can go from that to these exquisite um, sensor-based assessments that can say exactly how well you walked down that hallway and how well you walked down the hallway relative to how well you did it six months ago or um, how well you did it two hours ago before you took your medication, right? So you can just immediately see the effect of time and the effect of drug 
and the effect, the hope then is you can start to look at the effect of other things, right? Because a lot of Parkinson's patients will say, if I exercise, my symptoms go down. If I sleep well, my symptoms go down. And now you have a perfect smartphone-based or wearable-based application that allows an individual to actually test is sleep more important than exercise, right? Should I get up at 6 a.m. this morning and go to the gym or should I sleep for another hour or two? Which of those is going to make me have a better day? And they can, they can use, um, they, they can use a, a product like that to, to support themselves, right? That, that's the citizen scientist side of it. We're all trying to manage our own health and, mm-hmm. and the tools should not just be for clinicians, but they should be for individuals to use as well. That's it's a it's a trend now, right? I mean, it's a lot of like also diabetes research is relying on yeah. patients actually using the smartphone for monitoring all kinds of stuff. And yeah, so um, yeah, very cool. Um, yeah. I had another question about synapses because I'm wondering for our listeners if there's a researcher out there who says, "Wow, that sounds interesting. I want to use right. it." Um, how that would be for an individual or maybe even a group that's thinking about how they could use it. Yeah. So our 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 technical platform, Synapse, you can get to it fr- through our website, uh, sagebionetworks.org. Um, and it, it provides cloud-based data management for groups of individuals. It was designed to support groups that were distributed. But we know, for example, uh, laboratories who use it within the lab to manage their data across individuals, right? Because in any laboratory, people are constantly, or one hopes people are constantly graduating and, you know, postdocs are leaving. And, and so here you have a place where you can, um, you, you can store and manage the data. And uh, it works as, a, as, a, uh, as an index of data. So the data can live natively in Synapse, which would mean actually it's, um, it's in, that's in the Amazon cloud, or you can store it on your local servers and simply use the platform to point to where it is. Um, and it allows you to use both um, structured and unstructured um, metadata to describe the data, to version the data, right? To, to point to the location. And, um, and then there's a, there's a forum there to comment on it as well. And so um, anyone who'd like to use it to, to support their work is welcome to. You can you can do it completely privately, and and then you can choose. You can either choose who you share it with, or you can make it completely open. And the concept there really was, usually in the process of doing research, people do that in a closed way. But here, when here's an opportunity that as soon as they've completed the research, with a click of a button, they can make the entire process open um, to share it with with others as they wish. Um, yeah. So what's the future of Sage? Yeah. So we have this new project, which actually I think is the, the reason we learned about you that uh, I'd love to talk uh, very briefly about. Um, and the, the concept here is we've spent 10 years working with computational scientists who are doing bioinformatics to help them learn from each other how to collaborate more, share resources, evaluate methods, et cetera. And at the end of that process, what we continue to see happen is a, com- a beautiful computational outcome comes out, some lovely hypothesis. And now the computational researchers have to convince an experimentalist or a clinician that this is a research hypothesis worth them picking up and moving forward. And that 
that relationship, that that intersection of skills and vocabularies sometimes makes it very difficult. And so what we've noticed is even the most wonderful scientific claim doesn't always actually make it off of the paper and into the next cycle, right? And so we, we wanted to see if we could work on that. Are there mechanisms where we could um, focus on that intersection between computational and experimental researchers um, to, to move forward uh, computational claims? And so again, in the world of Alzheimer's disease, we've just started a project which we call OpenAD, um, which actually doesn't even stand for anything. I just wanted to use open in the title. Um, and it's a, it's a drug discovery project. So having spent six years doing computational research in a collaborative setting to identify new Alzheimer's disease drug targets, or I guess I should say hypotheses of new Alzheimer's disease drug targets, we now have a list of several hundred proteins that we think might be involved in Alzheimer's disease. And so we've started this new initiative where we've partnered with um, open drug discovery scientists, so structural biologists, medicinal chemists, et cetera, through the Structural Genomics Consortium, which is itself an international open science initiative. Um, to make experimental reagents. So this will include antibodies, cell lines, assays, and ultimately also uh, drugs, lead compounds for drugs, and put them completely into the open domain around uh, a couple of dozen of these new Alzheimer's disease targets with the concept that the research community will work on proteins where the reagents are easily available to get. And so we can, we want to inspire the research community to go out and look at some of these proteins, even though they may be high risk Alzheimer's disease targets. The, the, the fact of the matter is there's still going to be proteins that are interesting in the biology of something. So perhaps they will help us move Alzheimer's disease research forward, and perhaps they won't. They'll teach us some other new biology. But either way, actually creating open experimental reagents should help bridge that gap and, um, and convince uh, a set of experimentalists that these are interesting hypotheses to take up. So that has, that's, that's just started, and we're just picking our first targets to get started on. And we're, um, we're really excited at that experiment um, to see if, if taking this kind of approach actually can help move the field forward into new uh, target areas for Alzheimer's disease. That's very ambitious. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's really, um, it, it's good, you know, because, um, I remember my, my time as a researcher, it's, uh, you do pick the low-hanging fruits. You don't have time really to, you know, as a PhD student or even postdoc, you don't have time to pursue something like totally, where you have yeah. to make all the reagents, they're not working, and, 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 and you don't have a community of people working on it. And, and it's really difficult to then convince anybody to basically be patient with you and, um, you know. Yeah. Spend time developing the tools first. So, yeah. Our scientific uh, infrastructure leads us to be incredibly conservative in the mm. things we choose to work on, right? Because you have to get through peer review either to get a grant or to get your paper published. 
And your peers know a lot about the things that have already been studied and not a lot about the others. And so if, if they only have you know, the money to fund five grants, they're going to pick the five that they think are the surest bets. And it just turns out that ends up being the things we've already studied. And so we study the same things in a lot of different ways, more so than we go out there and, and strike out in new, in new directions. And, and so that's what we'd like to encourage. But one question, though, who's funding this? Because that sounds ah. too altruistic to be true. <laughs> it is also funded by the National Institutes of Health okay. yeah. here. Okay. Although um, the Structural Genomics Consortium, who has taken this sort of approach um, in other domains, is uh, themselves funded by um, pharmaceutical companies mm-hmm. and from the Wellcome Trust. So it's a joint funding model. And the concept there is, in, in that model is they go after um, biology that pharma is intrigued by, but is too high risk for them to invest in themselves. So you put a little bit of money into, everybody puts a little bit of money in and they build the reagents to be able to uh, evaluate the, the risk. So you're really, the whole process is about de-risking, mm-hmm. you know, novel, high risk, potentially high reward hypothesis. I feel also like this collaboration, it makes so much sense if you have so many people working on the same thing from a different perspective. Yeah. Mm. It's like, it's just, for me, it's kind of clicking. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> why would you ever want to do individual research anymore? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we, that's how scientists work, right? In the, you know, independent of these formalized consortium, we, we each go off and we do our own individual experiments and then we get together at a conference and we talk about the work we've done and eventually a body of work will coalesce around a hypothesis coming from multiple different groups doing multiple different kinds of research and at some point it gets to the point where we as a scientific community say okay that looks like truth right that looks like it's a reliable um scientific claim right and then it ends up in the um, in the, you know, the college biology book as, as a sure thing in biology. Uh, uh, and, and so these sorts of collaborations in some sense are just trying to formalize that and speed it up a little bit through faster communication. Um, but it's, it's piggybacking exactly on, I think, the way scientists tend to, tend to think already, which is, I think, why it, maybe it clicks for you. I have actually one more question that interests me. I'm wondering what kind of open science like um, term you work with. What is what is your understanding of open science? <laughs> that is um, a wonderful question, right? Because open science means very different things to very different people. Um, I think for me, uh, open science is is the focus on using transparency, reproducibility, and, and early access to research as a way to increase the, the trustworthiness or credibility of the scientific claims that are coming out. And I think that there's a lot of open science um, actions, so practices out there, which are designed to support an individual scientist in the context of their everyday research in in taking a couple of extra steps to assure themselves of the credibility of the research that they're doing. Um, 
and and so a lot of the efforts around open open data open code open protocols open access all of those i think really help us each as an individual scientist practice the best possible science we can do um, some of the programs we get involved with, I'd say, are at a, a meta level, one above that, which is to say, given that we're all doing the best possible science we can do, there are still places where we can have blind spots, um, meaning we can't always tell whether the interesting observation we see is due to true biological signal or perhaps technical signal, because we are limited in doing only you know, one set of experiments. And so by working together across multiple scientists with multiple sets of experiments, we can get at that to more quickly identify the biology out of um, the suite of, of claims that we're looking at. suite of, of claims that we're looking at. Well, that wraps up our episode for today. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any comments or have anything you feel like you would like to share or add to this episode, please get in contact with us. Yeah, you can follow us and uh, join us on Twitter at OOSP underscore Orion Pod, or you can email us directly at Orion at MDC Berlin.de. We'd love to hear from you. This episode was made possible by the Horizon 2020 Orion Open Science Project. Uh, you can find out more about that on the website. The music was composed and produced by Fabio de Miguel, and the sound mixing was done by Paolo Oliveira. We hope you join us again soon, and thank you for listening. Bye. Goodbye.